1 John chapter 3, beginning at verse 11. That's where we're going to start out tonight. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 11. While you're turning there, I wanted to leverage, if you will, my relationship with you in this room to maybe uh, offer some of you, if you're interested, a chance to maybe uh, be a part of another Bible study on Sundays that I'll be teaching. And so I'm just going to give you this information for who's interested. All you have to do is show up uh, if some of these interest you. Uh, Beginning this Sunday morning, I will be teaching back-to-back-to-back Bible studies on different topics in room A104. I've been doing the 8 o'clock and 9.15 for a while, and now I'm going to be doing 10.35 for a while as well. And I've really been praying in the last couple of weeks and months about some, some topics and some studies that I thought would resonate with people at Cornerstone. And so uh, starting this Sunday at 8 o'clock, I'm going to begin a new series called Essentials for Effective Christians. These are going to be looking at what I believe the Bible teaches are just the foundations that we need to be effective in our walk with God. Essentials for Effective Christians. That study will run through the rest of 2009 and anyone can jump in at any time just like they do the mind. So that may be of interest to some of you. At 9.15, I'm going to begin a new study this Sunday uh, and entitled it, Jesus' Words for the Discouraged. And I'm wanting this study to be more than just people sitting in on the study who are discouraged and wanting God to encourage them, although I think that would certainly be true. But I'm also wanting to appeal to those of you who want to encourage others. You, you have that gift and you have that desire to want to encourage others. You may not need encouragement yourself right now, but you would like to have some good information from the Bible to be able to encourage others with uh, along the way. This would also be a great study for those of you in that case. So either whether you are looking for some encouragement yourself or you would like to be an encourager, I think that study at 9.15 would be a good one. And then at 10.35, I've had a lot of folks ask me about this lately, and I just decided at the end of this year to go ahead and do it. I'm going to be doing a series called Basic Bible Prophecy. And uh, I'm going to be looking for the rest of 2009 at 10.35 at just the basics of Bible prophecy. Why even study Bible prophecy what are the And I, I really believe that if, if you come to that class for the rest of 2009, you will have a good handle on the basics of Bible prophecy. So maybe none of those classes interest you, but if they, any and all of those do, I'd love to see you in there Sunday morning, 8 o'clock, 9.15 or 10.35. All right. Tonight we are continuing our study of the book of First John. And just because we've been apart for a couple weeks, and by the way, I missed you. I missed you. Um, so I'm glad to be back with you all tonight. Um, so let's just do just a real, real 
abbreviated review. John, 1 John, was written by the Apostle John, whom I believe had a unique perspective on Jesus and on following Jesus. I, I don't believe anybody on earth was any closer to Christ than John was, especially in those last couple of years. Remember, he was the disciple who laid his head on the chest of Jesus during the Last Supper in the upper room. He is a disciple, the only one that was at the cross when Jesus was crucified, and who from the cross, Jesus said to John, uh, take care of my mother Mary, and laid that responsibility on John. So, Uh, John and Jesus had a very unique relationship, and and John was always uh, either by himself or with Peter and James in in that grouping that were always listening to everything Jesus said. They were the ones on the Mount of Transfiguration. If anybody knew and heard the heart of Jesus, it would be John. And so John, I think, is relating to us and relaying to us in the book of 1 John a lot of what he heard Jesus say, maybe just turning it a little bit through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and giving us a little bit of a different angle on things. And so when we come to this passage tonight, 1 John chapter 3, verse 11, this is going to be a passage on loving others. And we may say, well, we've already heard that a lot in the Bible, and we've even heard that already in 1 John. Why is John talking to us again about love? Why is there so much space spent in the Bible talking about love? A couple of things. One, I think that that evidently is the heart of God. God is love, John says, and and that when Jesus and John walked together, I think John heard a lot about love and saw love obviously embodied in everything that Jesus ever did. And so as he caught Jesus, if you will, and captured the heart of Jesus, it it was all about love. And so I think that's why he talks about it. And yet throughout 1 John, he will Talk about love just from a little bit different angle, just like a diamond. So as we turn it, we might see a little bit of a different angle or different perspective on this same important concept of love. But I think there's another reason why God repeats the message of love to us throughout the Bible. Because God knows us as human beings. And he knows that our natural bent, our our natural propensity is to be selfish. To think about self, rather than being selfless, if we just were left to ourselves without the influence of God and His Spirit and all of that, it would be all about us. And because God knows that is the natural bent of the human heart, that's the way we're just naturally going to go, that often throughout the Scripture, He's going to talk a lot about love to pull us back from always being about us and and being self-centered and being selfish living life and truly living a life of love, which is a life of sacrifice and selflessness. In fact, what we're going to see in this passage tonight, according to John, is that loving is really a matter of life and death from God's perspective. And we're going to talk about what that actually means. The other reason I think that John is inspired at this moment to once again bring up the whole thing of love is because love is not a safe investment. It just isn't. 
most of us in this room know that at times in our life, because we loved, because we gave our heart to another, because we put our heart out there, our, our heart got broke. And, and our heart might be still aching because we loved. And, and, and the Bible doesn't, you know, pretend to make it any different. It is. It does put us in a vulnerable spot. But God says the alternative is really dying. It's really not experiencing life at the level God intended. Because as painful as it is to have our heart broke, because we're still open to relationships and to love, and it is risky, and there are no guarantees, it's even worse from God's perspective to protect ourselves to the point where we lock our heart away in some kind of container, and we let no one in so that our heart won't be broke. And when we do that, our heart's going to change anyway, God says. Our heart's going to become this organ that is impenetrable. It it, it cannot be moved. It cannot be touched. It's going to get to a point where there's no feeling at all. And God says, you and I might as well be dead. Even though it hurts to love, God says that is the life he calls us to because when we experience that, at least we are living. But when we lock our heart away and we won't allow ourselves to be vulnerable at all and we try to protect our heart from getting hurt and getting broke, God says that's death. That's dying. That's shutting ourselves down. That is shutting ourselves off. And God never intended for us to live that way. He would rather us like himself love even though love's going to hurt at times than not to love at all and again we can begin to think that's exactly what god does that god loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life john 3:16 and yet we know how many times throughout history has god's heart been rejected has god uh, heart gotten broke either by us or by millions of other people that he created and that he loved and that he died for. So God knows all about the risks of love, but God says there is no other way because the only other alternative is death and God doesn't want us to live at that level. So what I'd like to do tonight, again, so that we can get the flow of what John is talking about tonight is just to read 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through verse 18 together. And then I just want to share some comments that God has laid on my heart from this passage tonight. John says, For this is the gospel message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not like Cain, who was of the evil one and brutally murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil, but his brothers were righteous. Therefore, do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have crossed over from death to life because we love our fellow Christians. The one who does not love remains in death. Everyone who hates his fellow Christian is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. We have come to know love by this, that Jesus laid down his life for us. Thus, we ought to lay down our lives for our fellow Christians. But whoever has the world's possessions and sees his fellow Christian in need 
and shuts off his compassion against him, how can the love of God reside in such a person? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. First of all, John takes us back to the gospel. Notice in verse 11, he says, this is the gospel message that you and I heard from the beginning. In order to even become a Christian and become a Christ follower, we had to at some point hear the gospel. Many people ask, what is the gospel? Where can I find a passage of scripture in the Bible that basically gives me the gospel right there? Let me, let me show you tonight. Keep your finger in 1 John and go back to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, you could also, in a sense, nickname or call the gospel chapter as well as the resurrection chapter. Because in the first part of 1 Corinthians 15, the Bible lays out for us exactly what are the elements of the gospel. And the reason why John mentions the word gospel that you hear a lot in you know, churches and Christian circles, and maybe we wonder, what is really the gospel? Remember, the word gospel just literally means good news. That's what the word gospel means. And yet it has several elements to it. And, and Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, gives us the elements of the gospel. Notice, beginning in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. For I passed on to you as of first importance... What I also received, and here's the gospel, the first element that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And I just want to stop right there because that's the real reason why John in 1 John 3.11 tells us we've heard about love from the very beginning because when we heard the gospel, we heard about love. Because we heard about a God who left heaven because he loved us so much. We heard about a God who took upon human flesh and a human body because he loved us so much. We heard about a God that was punished, not for his own sins, but for our sins. We heard about a God that went to the cross to die for not his sins, but for our sins. And if we ever saw love embodied, it was in the gospel that tells us the good news that God loved us so much wanted to restore the relationship with us that he was willing to die on a cross for our sins because he who knew no sin, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Amen to that truth. And so notice, again, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, the first element of the gospel, Christ didn't die for his sins, he had no sins. He was the sinless son of God, but because of his love, he died for our sins, according to the scriptures. The second element of the gospel, verse 4, he was buried. And the reason why that's an important part is because that is the proof that he really did die. Remember, one of the uh, naturalistic theories that men and women came up with through the, through the centuries to try to disprove the resurrection was that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He just passed out. He, he just sort of swooned. And, and they, you know, he didn't really die. No, he died and he was buried, third element, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And then the final element of this good news, he appeared. 
He appeared to, to Peter and to the twelve. Verse 6, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at one time. And so he takes the rest of these verses to talk about the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. So if someone was to ask you sort of a Bible quiz question, what are the elements of the gospel? Here's what they are. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Second element, he was buried. Third element, he was raised the third day according to the scriptures. And the fourth element of the gospel, post-resurrection appearances. There are four elements to the gospel message, the good news for you and I. And the appearances are part of that to prove to us by the many infallible proofs that Jesus gave us that he truly was alive. That this wasn't some hallucination, this wasn't some ghost, he didn't just appear in ghostly form, he bodily rose from the dead, he had Thomas even take his hand and touch his resurrected body to show even his disciples, I am alive, I am alive forevermore, and that's why we can be encouraged because Jesus tells those who follow him, because I live, you shall live also. And you and I one day can look forward to the resurrection because our Lord and Savior was the first fruits of the resurrection. He was the one that rose that would never die again. And folks, that's what you and I get to look forward to. That one day when these old bodies go into that ground, the resurrection's going to come, the trumpet's going to sound, and the dead in Christ are going to rise. And we're going to be alive with God forever and ever. So in 1 John, Verse 11, when he says, this is the gospel message you've heard from the beginning that we should love one another, that's what he's talking about. He's reminding us of where Christ came from, who Christ is, and what he did for us. And all we have to do is think about the gospel, just that. And that should be an inspiration and a motivation for us to love others because of the love that Jesus had for us and that he demonstrated for us when he came to earth and died on that cross. Again, not for his sins. He was the sinless son of God, the lamb of God, that in him there was no spot or no blemish, but he died for our sins so that we could have a relationship with him. And then... Back to 1 John 3.12. Then John wants to take us back very early in the Old Testament. Because what he wants to show us is it wasn't soon after sin entered the human race with Adam and Eve that the very first human being born after God created Adam and Eve was born with a sinful nature. That, that bent to have it be all about me. And let's remember something about Cain, the firstborn of Adam and Eve. That, that Cain was not this atheist. He, he was not this, this person who didn't believe in God. He was a worshiper of God. In fact, notice here in 1 John 3.12, not like Cain who was of the evil one and brutally murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil, but his brothers were righteous. Keep your finger there. And let's go back and take a look at that again tonight a little bit more closely. Go back to the book of Genesis, chapter 4. I think this will be of interest to some of you tonight. Genesis, chapter 4. And John, once again, to remind us, this whole thing about really not loving 
and letting God's love invade my life and how that can affect my relationships, even with my brother, even my blood brothers. And then, of course, John throughout this passage is talking about how we should love our fellow Christians. And the reason he does that is because we're all related by blood. We're related by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And if we're ever going to learn to love, we've got to start loving one another within the body of Christ. So let's read about Cain and Abel. Genesis chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Now the man had marital relations with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. Then she said, I've created a man just as the Lord did. Then she gave birth to his brother Abel. Abel took care of the flocks while Cain cultivated the ground. At the designated time, which implies that God had revealed what they should do, when they should do it, and what kind of offering they should bring, God always reveals His expectations to humans. He never expects humans to guess what His will is. He, he's never going to, you know, judge a human being for not... He said, look, here's what I'm expecting. I'm revealing this is what you need to do at the designated time. So, Cain brought some of the fruit of the ground for an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought some of the firstborn of his flock, even the fattest of them. And the Lord was pleased with Abel and his offering, but with Cain and his offering, he was not pleased. Now again, there's a lot of debate of, well, you know, the reason he wasn't pleased God was because it, was, it wasn't an animal, it was a... I don't really see all that. Here's what I do see. Whatever it was, God revealed what he expected. And the bottom line is, getting past all the argument about the peripheral stuff, is that Abel brought what God revealed should be brought, and Cain didn't bring what God revealed should be brought. And so that's why God wasn't pleased with his offering. And so Cain noticed. Instead of saying, oh, Lord, I'm sorry, let me go back and bring the right offering, Cain became very angry, and his expression was downcast. So God begins to have this conversation with Cain in verse 6. Now, when God asks a question of a human being, it's not because God doesn't know. It's God asks us questions so that we can maybe start thinking through maybe something to where it will reveal to us what's the real situation and the real problem. Not that God needs to find out. God already knows. So God says to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your expression downcast? Is it not true that if you do what is right, you will be fine? In other words, if you would have just brought the offering that I told you you should bring, everything would have been fine. You disobeyed. You wanted to do it your way rather than my way. So even back in the book of Genesis, we can see again how that sinful bent nature to do our own thing, go our own way, and do it ourselves rather than submitting to God reared its ugly head right away in the human race. Not much has changed in several thousand years, has it? And then notice God makes a very interesting statement towards the end of verse 7. If you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to dominate you, but you must subdue it. 
notice that God pictures sin as sort of like this, this predatory animal that if we just give that, that animal a foothold, that animal's going to come in and begin to, to set a foothold into our lives and then expand out from there. That's why God is saying, you know, we, we need to take care of things before they get bigger. That there are no such things in God's eyes as little sins and little bad habits and all that because God understands the progression. Just like we should if we've lived any length of time. That what can start out very little in our lives doesn't stay there. It ends up progressing into something much greater. And God was simply warning Cain. Cain, if you don't take care of this bad attitude, if you don't take care of this hatred that you've had towards your brother, and maybe this jealousy and bitterness and all that, Cain, it's not just going to stay at that level. It's going to grow into something much more ugly, and pretty soon, Cain, that sin is going to dominate you, and you're going to do something much worse than just not bringing me the right sacrifice at the designated time. Well, we know the story. Obviously, Cain didn't listen to God, did he? Because here's what the Bible says in verse 8. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. Guess what that implies? Premeditation. This wasn't just an accident. At this point, somewhere along the line, Cain said, I'm going to kill my brother. And then notice the Bible says, while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Literally, in the original Hebrew, the word is he butchered his brother. He didn't just kill him, he butchered him. Think about the anger. Think about all that must have been welling up in Cain's heart that Cain never dealt with and just it kept on going and kept on going till finally it consumed him and it came out in a very ugly way. It took the life of his brother. Now, I want to encourage you with this. I want you to go to the book of Hebrews before we go back to 1 John. Some may say, wow, you know, Abel, poor Abel, died a, died a young man, never had a chance to, you know, maybe live a full life. Go to the book of Hebrews chapter 11. Here's the thing about those who do the will of God. Even though Cain lived longer physically on earth than Abel, guess who has the longer lasting legacy? Not Cain. In fact, if you ask people whether they're Bible people, church people or not, what can you tell me about Cain? Most people would just say, well, I think he was the son or child of Adam and Eve and wasn't he the guy that murdered his brother Abel? That's about it. Abel's different. Because Abel lived for the Lord and committed his life to serving the Lord in an honorable way. Notice what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11 verse By faith, Abel offered God a greater sacrifice than Cain, and through his faith, he was commended as righteous because God commended him for his offerings. And don't miss this, the end of verse 4, very important. And through his faith, he still speaks, though he is dead. And can I just say, not only is Abel still impacting lives thousands of years after his brother butchered him. But this is also a phrase and a verse that I use many times. 
in Christian funerals where a Christian has died. And obviously we grieve and we mourn their loss. But folks, when we live for the Lord and when we've lived a life to honor God, our impact and our influence doesn't end when we die. If we commit ourselves to serving the Lord and loving the Lord and living a life of love and dedication and commitment to the Lord, the Lord will honor us by using our life to be a perpetual influence and inspiration and motivation for generations to come. God honored Abel by placing Abel in the Bible so that forever and ever Abel could be commended for his faith. This is the way God honors his servants. And so, and, and, and when you and I, all we have to do is let our lives fall into the hands of God and God will take care of it. We might not live as long as other people who maybe even hate God, but folks, it's what we do with the life we have. And when you and I dedicate ourselves to God, God can use the life that we've lived, the example that we've set, the footsteps that we have left for others to follow in, and he can use those for generation to generation to generation. And so that's why also John refers to Cain and Abel. Back then to 1 John. This really is about 1 John, I promise. It just, doesn't it go to show you though how when you study the Bible, how when you begin to study the Bible that you can then go, oh wait a minute, Cain and Abel, well I'll go back to Genesis and look at that and oh wait a minute, then Abel's also mentioned over here in Hebrews and this is the way you study the Bible. You start with the passage but then you can allow the Spirit of God to just lead you to all these other places that tie in and sort of round out and put a bow, if you will, on the entire story so that we get an even greater picture than just the little slice of pie that we're studying at the moment. Notice also in verse 313 of 1 John, he concludes this part by saying, Therefore, do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Something we need to remind ourselves of, because I think, you know, our perspective sometimes is a little warped. Whether it was the way we grew up, what we were taught, or whatever, that sometimes we get this improper perspective that if I do everything right in my life, if I do everything good, everybody's going to like me. But that's not biblical. I mean, Abel, Abel did what was right but his brother butchered him. Abel didn't do anything wrong to deserve that treatment, but his brother allowed the sin that was crouching at the door to come in and get a foothold in his life and ended up murdering his brother. And the ultimate example is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was the Son of God, never did anything wrong, never even committed one sin. Look at how he ended up. They hated him so bad that they nailed him to a cross. And they cried out in front of Pilate, who really wanted to try to release him, crucify him, crucify him. See, just because we do what's right and we live for God doesn't mean everybody's going to like us. In fact, the Bible is sort of warning us, if you will, or laying down sort of a you know, warning shot here. There might even be times in our life where we do exactly what God wanted us to do and people are going to hate us anyway. Because again, there's this whole battle between not only good and evil and God and Satan, but between love and hate. 
And sometimes we can be loving, and, and, and if, if people aren't allowing their hearts to be filled up with the love of God, then that vacuum in their life is going to be open for other things to come in that are not only destructive to them, but are destructive to relationships. Because one thing God is teaching us here in 1 John chapter 3 of why love is so important to God is because when we love each other, we bring each other together. We, we, we bring in a unity and we, we come together. When there is not the kind of love that, that God wants to put into our lives, there's always going to be divisiveness, separation, murder, division, all of that. That's what happens when we're not loving on the level that God calls us to love. And that's why God is especially wanting His people, Christians, to get this message. Because remember... Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples because of the kind of love you have for each other as Christians. And we all know if you study church history that many times the church turned people off to God because the people outside the church looked at the people and the way they were treating each other inside the church and go, I don't want that. I I get treated better out here than I would if I stepped into church. And that's why God says, I want my people to be different. I I want them to be so filled with my love that they will just love on each other to such a degree that it will actually attract and draw people from outside the church into the church to find that love that's on a whole other level than what we could ever find without God. In fact, while I'm on this, man, this is going to get away from me tonight. Back to Ephesians for just a moment. The book of Ephesians. I shared this with you several weeks ago, but it's important enough to repeat. Especially this about love. Ephesians chapter 3. It's that prayer that I shared a couple weeks ago. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. Paul says, For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, I pray that according to the wealth of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner person, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, so that because you've been rooted and grounded in love, you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, now here's the verse, and thus to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you and I, as children of God, may be filled up to all the fullness of God. See, that's really the key to it all. Because if I'm not allowing God's love for me to fill me up and fill that vacuum, that void inside of me as a human being, then I'm going to look for other things, other remedies, other people, other relationships, other things to fill that vacuum. Because nature abhors a vacuum. And it's not just going to be left empty. If I don't fill up my life with the love that God has for me, then I'm going to fill it up with someone or something else. The flip side of that, though, is just as incredible. When you and I truly begin to capture how much God loves us, and we allow God's love for us to fill up that vacuum, then it fills us up to the point where the love that that we can shower upon others is just the overflow of the love that God is pouring into our lives. And the Bible teaches us that that's exactly what God has done through the Holy Spirit. Romans 5, 5, God poured out his love upon us through the Holy Spirit that he has given to us, Paul says in Romans 5, 5. And that's where many of us have to go back to. 
the reason we're not loving others and loving the way we are called to as Christians is because we're still wrestling with God loving us. And we've not allowed that vacuum and that hole in our innermost being to be filled up with God's love for us. And because of that, we'll spend our whole lives trying to fill it with other people and other things. And only God's love can fill the vacuum. Back to 1 John chapter 3. That's why John then continues in verse 14. We know that we have crossed over from death to life because we love our fellow Christians. You you might say, why doesn't God just say love everybody? Because, if you will, the, the, the testing ground of our love is our brothers and sisters in Christ. Just like the testing ground of our love needs to be our family and the people that live underneath our roof. You might say, well, they're harder to love. Well, listen, maybe that's the very reason. Because here again... Somehow we think that this love that God has called us to is something that I can manufacture and whip up myself. And that's not true. The love that God calls us to in the Bible is a supernatural love. It is a love that can only be done, if you will, through the power of the Holy Spirit. There is no, that's why God can tell us, love your enemies. We're going to go, if, if that was up to us, we would go, God, you're crazy. But when we understand that when God is calling me to love my enemies, it's not going to be because I whip myself up to love my enemies or somehow pull something out somewhere to love. No, it's because I'm allowing the Holy Spirit to take over my life and He's going to love my enemies through me. That's the answer. And so... You know, yeah, there are some Christians that are easy to love. There's some of our brothers and sisters in Christ that are really hard to love. But it's no accident that God's calling us to love our fellow Christians. Because God wants to show us, I'm not asking you to do something that you can do. Why would you need me if I'm asking you to do something that you could do in your own power and strength? But if I'm asking you to love all Christians, even the ones that are hard to love, then you're having to rely on the Holy Spirit. And now you're able to do something that only you can do with my help. That only you can do through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's living on a whole different level. That's experiencing the kind of life that God wants all human beings to experience. Not the kind of life that you and I could figure out on our own, but the kind of life that can only be experienced in concert and in unity and in fellowship with God himself. That's the abundant life that Christ brought to us. That's why he calls us and commands us then to love our fellow Christians. And notice, again, he talks about love being a matter of life and death. See, death can can basically be defined as separation. You know, death physically is the separation of the physical part of us from the immaterial part of us. And and so, again, when we're not loving as we should, guess what's going to happen in our relationships? Separations, you see. And, And... relationships are going to be broken and torn apart when there's not the love that God is calling us to. Another part of death and describing death is decay. And again, God is saying when you and I aren't loving and allowing his love to flow through us, we're not living a life that's real life. We're living a life of decay. We're shutting down. We're shutting off our love. We're pulling our heart back. And we're trying to protect ourselves, which is the natural thing to do. But God can enable us to override the natural bent to look out for ourselves and say, 
I'm going to give myself to others even if I get burned, even if I get hurt, even if they nail me to a cross, even if they rail at me, even if they pull out my beard, even if they strike me, even if they put a sword in my side, I'm still going to love. And that's the kind of love that could even bring Jesus to say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And God calls us to love on a supernatural level. Think about how our world would be different if all of us lived at that level. Think about how our country would be different. Think about how our homes would be different. Think about how this church would be different if we truly loved each other the way Christ loves us. Which is why in verse 16, he challenges us. We have come to know love by this that Jesus laid down his life for us. Thus, we ought to lay down our lives for our fellow Christians. Folks, when he uses the terms laid down, he's very intentional about that term. Those were terms used for crucifixion. You see, when, when a person was crucified, they had to be laid down on the cross in order for the spikes and the nails to be driven through their limbs. They were laid down. And it's exactly the picture that John has in mind. He's saying, folks, let's not forget what Jesus did for us because of his love. He laid down. And folks, let's not forget, because he was God, no man, Jesus says, took my life from me. I gave it up. I willingly laid down my life. Remember when they came to arrest Jesus in the garden? Peter wheels out his sword and goes, come on, Jesus, let's fight him. And Jesus says, put your sword away, Peter. I'm not about fighting at this point. This is why I've come. I've come as the Son of God because of my love for humanity to lay down. If I didn't want anyone to take my life, no human being could take the life of God. But I have come to lay it down. I mean, imagine the God that created the universe gave up at that moment the power that he could have had to just wipe everyone out on the scene and prevent what was happening from happening. But he loved us enough, even looking down the quarters of time, thousands of years later, seeing your face and my face and your life and my life and saying, I'm going to lay down on that cross and allow those Roman soldiers to drive those stakes through my limbs. And John is saying, I saw it with my own eyes. I saw how the Son of God laid down on that cross. And God is calling us to do the same thing for one another. When was the last time we truly laid down our lives for our fellow Christians? See, God is calling us to sacrifice. A life of love as God loves isn't convenient by any stretch of the imagination. It won't always fit into our schedule. It's, it's going to require sacrifice, an absolute death to self. That's why Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, here it is to be my disciple. Take up your cross daily. To follow me. That's why Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, God wants all of us as his followers to get to the point in our lives where every day we wake up, 
and say, Jesus, it's not about me today. It's about bringing glory and honor to you. So I'm going to lay my life down. God, whatever it is, I'll follow you. Now, some may say at this point, well, if it even came to physically giving up my life for another Christian, I would do that. And maybe, maybe we would. But that's not what God is ultimately asking. He's not asking for maybe the ultimate sacrifice because very, very few times throughout history is God going to require one Christian to give up their life for another Christian in a physical way. But what he does ask may be even more challenging. And that is that every day we live our lives that we look for the opportunities God gives us to love on others, whether they're Christian or not, to love on others as Christ loves us. And that's why then he includes verse 17. Whoever has this world's possessions and sees his fellow Christian in need and shuts off his compassions against him, how can the love of God reside in such a person? And don't miss that phrase that John uses, shutting off compassion. It's the picture of a spigot, of something that you and I, instead of that flow of, of compassion, your pain and my heart, as I said Sunday, uh, being part of my life, that love flowing out from me, I, as a human being, have the power to shut it off, to shut off that valve to keep that love from flowing out to others. And John and Jesus is...